sorry indeed to lose you. But I want you to know I couldn't be fonder of you if you were my own son. But, well, if you lose a son, it's possible to get another. There's only one Maltese falcon. So I was talking to my wife the other day. All right. And she looked at me and she said... You don't have a wife. Fuck. Um, okay, this is the uh, intro for the podcast. Yo. 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 Yo, with the silver screen fiends, yo. Yo, yo, with the silver screen fiends, yo. Hey, watching movies, watching movies, yeah. Hello, everyone, gentlemen, ladies, colleagues, heterosexual life mates that I may have run into at one point in my life. But what about the homosexual life mates that you also ran into at one point? I, I'm not here to be biased. I'm here to preach the gospel of film. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. But you specifically said hetero. All right, so welcome back to the Silver Screen Fiends podcast. Um, if you'll notice, I accidentally killed Joe and buried him in my backyard. So with me this week, I have a voice actor, a good friend, the co-host on a little YouTube show called Retro Roulette, my own heterosexual life mate, Anthony. What's up? We don't have to do this. If you, we could just, you want to grab a bite? I mean. I'm just here to chill, man. Talk about movies. I happen to take a, a class in film noir, and from what I understand... Whoa! What a coincidence! That's, that's today's, today's episode! episode. Oh, <laughs> you fucking, fucking imagine that! <laughs> it's almost like this shit was preordained! Shh! Don't tell the people! So, <laughs> so, yes, Joe is out this week, so I figured I'd get with my good buddy, because we are in... Joe, you're getting cucked. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Norvember... And uh, I think oh. I think by the end time this airs, I'd say, it'll... I'd say that's clever. But wouldn't it have been better to do Noirtober? Well, you gotta save all the spooky films for October. That okay? Yes, you know what? I, you're you're completely the spoops. Right. The spoops. I completely I forgot horror was a genre that even existed. I oh fuck you, good sir. <laughs> yeah, fuck, <laughs> fuck me indeed. Yeah. I can't I can't sit through five minutes of a horror movie before I'm like nope 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 oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a, I am a bitch. Okay? We're so we're this. we're moving on. Um, so we figured with the end of November. We would like to sit down and discuss our favorite genre film. Well, I'd say like one of my favorite, but I know it's your favorite genre. Um, so, but actually, before we get into that, we kind of wanted to pay tribute to a man who sadly passed away this past Monday, and that is a Mr. Steven Hillenberg. Now, most people don't recognize the name, but you certainly recognize his work. A little yellow sponge that captivated our hearts since 1999. If you still have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about, Hooters in a pineapple under the sea! Yeah, now you know. So, yeah, I mean, he was fucking 57, and it, he died to ALS. He was only diagnosed, like, a year ago. But it could, it could mean, and he, when he was diagnosed, it was the early stages, but from what I understand, this disease could be vicious, man. It could, it's, it's a killer, and it's always fatal. I, I didn't know, realize that, yeah, that it could kill you that quickly. Do you remember the remember the ice bucket challenge? Yeah, yeah. There's a reason why that was trying to make people more aware of this disease, because this shit's terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. It's a And it's like, beyond the fact that it's always fatal, and it's fucking tragic and, and just incredibly sad to see somebody suffering. From sure. It, it's, it's a brutal and horrific way to die. Yeah, it's like it, it. Well, isn't it like similar to like muscular dystrophy? It's your nervous system just starts deteriorating. Yeah, that's so. Everything fucking sad. just everything just 
deteriorates, shuts down, and eventually you die. Yeah, and that's oh my god. And, and it's two to five years upon diagnosis. Really? Two to five. Yeah, I was after Hillenberg died. I was really upset um, about his passing because sure, his show, both of his shows, Modern Rocco's Modern Life and SpongeBob. <laughs> I, 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 can I can I tell a small Hillenberg story? Yeah, sure. Us? Yeah. So, I, me and my little sister and my little brother grew up quoting SpongeBob to death, but there was this one time. Where we actually did a Rocco's Modern Life thing. Uh, my mother and my father had church friends. Yeah. And we had never met anybody named Ed before. Oh, God. <laughs> so we um, we went over to their house uh-huh. and Mr. Uh, the, the Mr. I don't want to give his last name just for privacy things. But his first name was Ed. Uh-huh. And suddenly, and my dad tells me this. I don't remember doing this. But me and Olivia, my little sister, uh-huh. just start going... Ed, 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 Ed. Just sitting there. Everyone is so confused. Dad was the only one who knew what was going on. But we're just going, Ed, Ed, Ed. Oh my god, that's fantastic. That dude, he knew how to fucking do cartoons. Yeah, and, and it's crazy because Hillenberg in the late 80s, early 90s, did some cartoon to be submitted in some festival. And Joe Murray, the creator of Rocco, also did a cartoon. And Hillenberg ended up uh, reaching... Well, Joe reached out to Hillenberg because he saw this cartoon. And Hillenberg poured thousands of dollars of his own money into the cartoon. And Murray was like, yeah, I'll take a shot on you. And then Hillenberg became director of Rocco. And then he occasionally storyboarded and wrote for episodes but i mean to see that humor transcend into a child show like that like spongebob was originally going to be like more of an adult oriented show but hillenberg was encouraged to write a children's show he's like well i don't fucking know how to do that but he had a uh, teacher's experience at the orange county marine institute and he realized that all the kids were kind of like mem- mesmerized by like all those tide pool animals like you know um Crabs and fish and whatever. Starfish. And- right. Yeah, of course. And he was like, Things wait. Things you could, like, pet. Yeah. And he was like, wait, that's a brilliant idea. And obviously, like, he drew inspiration for SpongeBob's character from, like, Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy, Jerry Lewis, and, like, even Pee Wee Herman. So much, yeah, a lot of slapstick. Yeah, a lot of slapstick. A lot of slapstick. And, 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 yeah, the pilot aired in 99, and ever since then, like, literally two entire generations can quote the thing backwards in front i mean it had such a fucking impact you go up to any stranger in our demographic on the street you quote a line from seasons one through three they not only they not only know it they'll throw it right back at you they'll just keep going yeah i mean it's like the show had such an impact and like i we could sit here and drone on and on but we we just wanted to would you like this job sam (laughs) starting now boy would i fired oh (laughs) So uh, now we're going to dive into the real meat of the discussion, which is film noir. Now, Anthony. Yes. yes. Do you like Do you like film noir? Do you like a little bit? Yes. A little bit. <laughs> so film noir, most people have heard that term. Uh, but to break it down simply, actually, noir is a French word that literally translates to black, black. film. And um, film noir in its simplest form is basically just a stylized Hollywood crime drama story. And they have, um, you know, there's some consistencies with it. There's uh, always a femme fatale. 
Uh, there's always overtones of cynicism and sexual tension and leverage. There's always a murder. There's always a murder. And it all the, the criminal always gets punished. That was actually a requirement. Right. They could not show mm-hmm. anybody getting away with it. That was that was a, a code. Well, that yeah. Well, that that actually stems from back in the day when uh, Warner Brothers was releasing the early gangster films like uh, Little Caesar, The Public Enemy, movies like that. Mm-hmm. They would actually put disclaimers in in front of the movie, like, "Hey, listen, like <laughs> we know that what they're doing is wrong. We're depicting what life was really like." And we're just letting you know that these guys don't deserve to walk on the street. So, um, but from there, and then the Hayes Code was implemented. and um, But Nora was, like, more prominent in the 40s and up until, like, the late 50s. And there's, like, still, like, neo-noir throughout time. But this was, like, the pure bread and butter of it. And, like, there's also, in addition to everything we were talking about, there's, you know, there's a few more... Uh, consistencies with it. It usually involves like a detective or like a policeman who just happens to be on his day off or somebody like a victim of circumstance. Uh, but typically like a majority of them are involved like a hard-boiled private eye and they get wrapped up in a story of like corruption and sexual tension and impulsive decision making. Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I really, you know, I guess we could just kind of dive into some of our favorite stories. I guess... It's hard to touch on film noir without bringing up uh, Double Indemnity. That's that, that, oh, I'll never forget watching that in school. So, <clears throat> I, I've told you this, Sam, but yeah. let, let me tell the audience. I took a, um, I took a uh, class in college that was uh, centered entirely around film noir. And uh, shout out to uh, my old professor, Susan Ryan. Um, Hi, at, Susan. Uh, <laughs> at TCNJ. Um, it was actually one of my favorite classes uh, that I took uh, throughout my entire college career. Uh, I got exposed to so many good movies. And Double Indemnity, to this date, stays with me. It's just one of those perfect it, movies. Yeah, it really it's is. It's just so perfect because the way... <clears throat> are we allowed to discuss spoilers? Oh, yeah, no. I was going to like discuss part <laughs> okay. of the movie, yeah. So... Um, one of the things that like it just that always gets me is how all throughout the movie his his best friend you know the the other investigator is always like this is little man inside me that's got this instinct oh yeah ba- Bar- Barton Keys yeah played by yeah. Edward G Robinson yeah okay so yeah. He, the entire time he's like that doing it and at the very end of the movie he's just sitting at him and he and he goes to smoke a cigarette and he just lights it for him as he's dying yeah that perfect one hundred and fifty. Score ending. And, Just perfect. Right. And, and actually, I was going to bring that up as a point towards the end of the discussion. But why that's so significant is because throughout the whole movie, Fred McMurray's character, Walter Neff, is lighting Robinson's cigarette the entire movie. And it's a very small detail that you tend to not notice. And then at the end, it all comes full circle. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, so you know that like... Because, like, Walter Neff wasn't necessarily... The thing about noir is there's never... You learn throughout the story that there's never a hero and a villain. You just learn that life, sometimes people do good things. Sometimes people do awful things. But you don't know who's real or who's fake or whose motivation is what. So, like, that was super powerful when I watched that. Because uh, I was like, wow, this really uh, fucking ties it all together. Like a nice rug 
in a nicely feng shui room. Right. But um And the and the movie is just so tense. Oh, from yeah. from front to finish, between between him and Phyllis and and their sexual tension versus the tension between him and Robinson. Robinson's character, like that constant back and forth. Yeah. It's it's so oh, it was just the whole movie is a roller coaster from front to finish and it is noir in every aspect of the world. There are scenes where the characters are entirely in shadow and all you see are their sil- silhouettes and everything about it is just so foreboding. You feel the shadow of death in the room. You feel it. You f- and and the lighting is perfect. Yeah, and and that's interesting because I, I wanted to bring up uh, a, you know a staple in noir like Anthony was talking about is the lighting and um, the lighting style was known as low key lighting. Yeah. So like what they would do is they would they would block off every source but one in the whole room or wherever they were on the set so that it would cast like these really heavy shadows deliberately to create dramatic scenery and cause the tension to be fierce. And it worked. And yeah. it worked. It, I feel like it worked especially well prior to the jump to color being made. Oh yeah. Um as a matter of fact, so when Double Indemnity was made, uh I believe it was released in 44. And uh, Billy Wilder, who, by the way, is like one of my favorite directors. He did Sunset yeah. Boulevard, Some Like It Hot, Ace in the Hole. Uh, we're we're going to talk about some of those, too. But um, uh, this this movie came out around the time people were moving into, like, Technicolor. So I think he personally made it almost as, like, a fuck you to everybody transitioning. Because the dark contrast of his black and white was almost, like... Done on purpose, but it suited the mood of the movie perfectly. And I think it was like an indirect stab at people changing into color as well. It, it, it could be, but you could also argue that that movie would not have been the same in color. It w- it oh, no, have, no, no, no. It wouldn't have even been remotely close. And the thing is, um, on that topic of black and white versus color... Uh, I know you haven't seen this movie, but Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Strangers on a Train. Which is like one of the only Hitchcocks I haven't seen. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually, I think it's the only Hitchcock movie that you've seen. I have seen. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's also one of my favorite movies, I have to say that. Uh-huh. But um, Hitchcock had the option to shoot that movie in color, but he deliberately chose to do it in black and white because, for the ver- for that very reason... It just isn't the same. No, it's not. And it's so true. Like, Sam and I are gamers, and we do play video games. Sometimes when we when games show things in a, in a black and white color pa- palette, it really does add a different, like, air. Like, uh, for example, there's this game called Undertale. And whenever you're in combat, it deliberately shows you the combat in black and white. Yeah. Because it's just not the same. It, it, it adds that tension to it. Yeah. It could also be found in, in films like these older movies, like with noir, where the absence of color really does add something to the film by yeah. taking away something. It's it's much more powerful <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, I, right. I agree a thousand percent. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I guess we, we won't get too much into the plot of Double Indemnity just because we believe everybody should see it. And same thing with Strangers on a Train. I mean, yeah, I I absolutely agree, and and well, yeah. The, give it a quick summary: guy guy gal commit insurance fraud, and uh, almost get away with it. 
and, and that's the thing. They all will get away from it. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if I wasn't meddling kids on dead dog. <laughs> and I love, I love Edward G. Robinson, like uh, in Little Caesar and Key Largo and even Soylent Green, which was his last, last role. He died like two weeks later. Yeah, but, see? But, but it's funny because, like, he was always known for playing this short, fierce villain in almost all his roles. But off screen, he was, like, super shy and quiet, and he was artistic, too. And it was kind of like that way with, like, Vincent Price and other actors from that generation. Oh, don't even get me started on Price. Oh, he's my favorite fucking actor. Oh, he's such a great fucking actor. Yeah, but, uh, we'll we'll save the jerk-off fest for (laughs) him. Um, yeah, so they basically commit insurance fraud, and they almost get away with it. But But the movie is spectacular in the right that it layers and layers and layers. And it's, the whole time, it just gets tenser and tenser and tenser. And you never really know where it's going to go next. That's right. the That's the whole thing of why it's such a good thriller is that it's ne- and never, at no point is it predictable. No point no. is it predictable. No, absolutely and not. And it's, it's a fucking roller coaster and I love that shit. Same thing with Strangers. Quick plot summary of that one. Uh, the premise of the movie is two guy, uh, one guy comes up with the perfect plan for murder and that is... You find somebody who and kill the person they want to kill, and they'll kill the person you want to kill. There's no way to uh, you know tie it back because there's no motive. Uh-huh. Um, there was a, a show I think on ABC's uh, Castle. It was a it was a crime detective show where they actually yeah. there was a whole episode that at the end of the at the end of the episode, it turns out that the murder was because crisscross. That's what it's called, crisscross. Oh, strangers on a train. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> that and that's how, and that's how the, the 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 antagonist of the movie, Bruno Anthony, describes it. He calls it crisscross. Uh huh. Where um, it's a brilliant movie. It's a brilliant and and the thing is that Hitchcock's right. I mean that the plan is almost perfect. The only reason why it doesn't work in the movie for for Anthony is because his partner. Gets cold feet and doesn't go through with it, right? Yeah, and honestly, never and never wanted to have anything to do with it to begin with, right? But it's 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 a phenomenal movie, and uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to the day you see it. Yeah, I don't know why I've slept on it for so long. I just like I've seen so much Hitchcock. I mean, like Vertigo, North by Northwest, Rope, uh, Torn Curtain, Topaz. Like I just I the Thirty Nine Steps. Which has Nora-like elements, but I like I love his work. I gotta check it out. And that's the thing. Um, Strangers on a Train has a lot of noir elements. I've seen this movie four or five times now. Okay. And I would argue it's not noir. And right. I, I, it's, I'd say it definitely has some noir elements. There's there's some use of shadows. But the film it, in itself has a very different tone. It's almost, dare I say, lighthearted. It's oh, almost, it's that's almost, interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I wouldn't have thought that. There are parts of the movie where it where the movie is is just lighthearted. Yeah. Um, parts that'll make you smile, parts that'll make you kind of laugh, and noir doesn't really do that. No, it's gritty. <laughs> it's gritty. It, it it's kind of edgy. I could just you know have a dark sense of humor here, and that might be the reason why the movie makes me laugh. But um, you know how how usually the protagonist or the the main character of a noir film usually ends up suffering at the end of the movie sure. yeah. somehow. Either by dying or he gets caught and goes to jail, whatever, what yeah. have you. Um, that doesn't happen in Strangers on a Train. Oh, I the, see. The main character walks away completely unscathed. 
Because he technically never does anything wrong. I see, yeah, yeah. But, and, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's not noir and it doesn't have the same tone as most noir fil- films. Again, it, it borrows a lot of elements from noir. Yeah. But I would really just label it as, as a general classic movie. Yeah. It, and uh, a thriller. It's yeah. definitely a thriller, but I don't. I would not really fit it into the noir category. And that's exactly how I feel about <laughs> Casablanca. A lot okay. of people try to claim it's a noir, but it's not. It's, like, really not. It grabs certain elements. But like you said with Changes on a Train, at, at times, through the tension, the depression, the dark comedy, there is a little bit of the lightheartedness. And I feel like if you have any significant humanism that's not actually real enough to make you question your life... Then you're not noir. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sam. I, I wasn't listening. Uh, could you uh, could you play it again, Sam? <laughs> yes. Uh, fuck you. <laughs> um, and he never says that in the movie. I, yeah. I've never. I've actually never seen Casablanca, but I've seen clips of it. Yeah. But that. But that's a thing that's commonly attributed to that movie. Is some guy goes play it again, Sam. Never says it. Well, right. He. Um, uh, yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't say that directly. He. Uh, it's actually the the love interest that that says it was that uh Ingrid Bergman in Castleblanca. I'd have to Google it. <laughs> yeah, I it's been so long since I've seen it, but yeah, I mean um, I mean, but that was just like a quick example. I I know how you feel with like Stranger on a Train, but uh, yeah, it's it's it, it common misconception that a dark black and white film is a noir. Yeah, there are certain aesthetics and certain criteria that absolutely have to be met. Yeah. It's it's sort of like um there there are rules when it comes to noir and those rules must be followed. Yeah. It's um you can you could have noir elements in your movie like let's say for example uh the 2010 uh sci-fi thriller Inception. Uh-huh. That is neo-noir. That's neo-noir cuz it borrows so many heavy elements but it doesn't necessarily follow the rules of the, the, the classic rules of noir yeah but i as somebody who's a huge fan of noir films and really good science fiction and nolan north i gotta say inception's one of my favorite movies just because yeah. It, yeah, oh yeah just because it i got it on my first time like people walked out apparently my parents walked out of that theater feeling completely lost completely confused and they didn't get it. They and I tried watching it with them. I tried it going through it like frame by frame, saying <laughs> they try and explain what's going on yeah. as it's going on. They never got it. You they were never explaining. I was. I was. I was. I was nerd explaining <laughs> uh, Inception to my to my non nerdy parents. That makes sense. I, I can't see the confusion. But it's it was such a good concept for a movie. Something that I'd never been done before. In the That's special. true. It was unique. Like it was also the first movie I watched that had Tom Hardy in it, and I oh. fell in love. He was my favorite character. In that whole movie, Tom Hardy. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. He's such a good. He, he his his performance style takes after like the classic actors so well, and yeah. you can like see that there and that influence. It's great. Um, but yeah, like Inception's like neo noir. You've got the shadows on the faces. You've got the femme fatale in that movie. You've seen it, right? Yeah, one okay. time. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's a crime. It's a heist. movie. It's it's. Sort of like a reverse heist. It's stealing yeah. <laughs> something is putting something in. That's true. If yeah. you had it, like like folks, listen. If you, if you haven't seen this movie, please go watch it. It's 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 a it's great. You gotta trust the fiends here. Any movie we talk about, 
put it into your eye sockets, and we guarantee you pleasure. <clears throat> Only the most sensual of pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> it's ribbed. <laughs> it's, uh, it's ribbed eye sockets. <laughs> ribbed eye sockets for um, pleasure. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess uh, another movie I want to touch on, which I was both surprised and pleased, speaking of pleasure, when I heard you like this as well, which is Mildred Pierce. The the pinnacle of noir at its finest. When, when you talk to me about noir, the first movie that comes to mind is not Double Indemnity. It is Mildred Pierce. I think that that is the ultimate Film noir. Yeah, I would I would argue next to uh, Indemnity and the Maltese Falcon, Mildred Pierce is like the perfect example of it. It is. It, it's it's a it's a it follows all of the rules. It 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 meets all of the criteria for noir. You're meeting all my standards. <laughs> oh no, you're meeting all of my high standards. <laughs> um, it meets it meets the noir standard, and it um, it. It's just such a it's it's a timeless story. Like you haven't really seen anything quite like that. Espe- well, especially for that time period. Absolutely. I mean, noir obviously existed then, but like that was like it. It was a little bit taboo to be doing that kind of story. Um, but uh, basically, uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a 1945 film noir, and it stars Joan Crawford. Uh, you know, who's in Berserk, whatever happened to Baby Jane. She's, like, one of my favorite actresses from that period. But uh, she originally worked at MGM. And once her contract ended, she didn't want to take work on because she believed that her next comeback role had to be something super fucking special. Well, fast forward, like, a year or two later, and she signs a contract with Warner Bros., and she fucking wins her Academy Award for Best Actor. Absolutely. And it shows. And, it, and, it de- and it's well-deserved. It's a well-deserved Academy Award because that, that film, is, it, it, it's, it's emotional. It, you, you not only sympathize with her, you identify with her, and you get, you get her struggle. When she has the restaurants and you see that she's a working woman by yeah. herself, all alone, really, you, you identify with her, and it's, it's a good movie. It's yeah. just, it's a good movie. Yeah, because not many movies were, because you think about like the 1940s or 50s and your your mind kind of draws to like this perfect cutesy hoity-toity family that can't be broken apart. But the movie starts with her husband like being a deadbeat fuck and he's like, I'm leaving you. And then she's forced to make it on her own, so she does. And then her daughter becomes spoiled fucking rotten. So there's a lot of emotional trauma there that we can relate to. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a realistic portrait of the American family. Yeah, absolutely. When you yeah. think it but when you think about it, the the, the the white picket fence family that you're used to thinking about with a mom, a dad, a little boy, and yeah. a younger girl. That shit doesn't exist, and I don't. And I would argue, it's some unless it's a very rare case. That shit never existed. No, it never did, and no. the, and that's the thing. It um, it was especially for that time period, very realistic reflection of how families were, are, will be to the end of time. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> and and like good on them for for bringing that to light. Because sure. that made it relatable. That made us care. Yeah. 
Because when you can relate to a character, when you can identify with a character, when you can project onto a character, you become infinitely more emotionally invested in that character than you do um, if it's just your perfect picket white fence family. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's, it's like you see them all their lives happy and then you start to get cynical and you, then you, after that you kind of want something bad to happen to them. Yeah. That's why, because you don't identify with them. You become jealous. You become... Angry. You become Hitchcock. You become, <laughs> you become Alfred Hitchcock mixed with a pissed off Edward G. Robinson. And I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a bullet in the, in the foot parts hole. See, then I'm not gonna move up the legs. See, it's, it's absolutely true though, and that's why I was never bored with the movie. It was consistently dramatic, right, and super real, and like I just like every time I just saw the daughter trying to take advantage of Mildred, I was like. Mm, fucking bitch shut the fuck and then Mildred tries to save her at the end cause spoiler it's, alert it, it's her daughter. daughter fucking get, kills the guy and like you wanna try to be sympathetic but like you can't <laughs> it's, oh, a, it's a wild ride it is it's, yeah. it's, it's another one of those noirs that I, I would la- easily label a roller coaster. I, and actually um, this uh, I don't know if it was this year or last year but Criterion did a restoration of it oh and I, I, I picked it up recently and uh, it's fucking gorgeous so yeah, we recommend sure. it we recommend it definitely oh it, god just, uh, just as the other all the other things we've talked about it's ribbed for pleasure. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I know you wanted to discuss Touch of Evil a little bit. Yeah, I actually, I've, I, when we were studying it, uh, I think I might have been shown a clip from it. Uh-huh. But this is going back so far. I mean, this class was six years ago now. Right. Um, um, I, I don't recall having ever seen Touch of Evil. Um, please, educate me on this, on this immaculate piece from what i understand this is this was the start right uh well no the thing is it wasn't the start but when it was it was actually released towards the end of the normal life cycle oh really yeah it was i think it was like around 1958 actually um but the the thing about it is like it kind of completely and it's ironic that it was towards the end of the life cycle because it completely retooled what we knew as noir and brought it to like even a grittier light because like Orson Welles obviously it's an Orson Welles film and um it also stars Charlton Heston who's brilliant and Janet Leigh as well and the thing is it it you know it it's like a stark perverse story about like murder kidnapping and police corruption and like you hear that and you think of an old film and you're like mm, it seems like one of those uh it, more of like a static story like when i when i look at certain films from back end a lot of them appear flat if that makes sense but with touch of evil there was like actual depth to it um like for example the first shot of the movie is 5 minutes um they're like taking their little vacation uh the the main character is like this retired cop or well i don't know if he's retired or i think he's like just not on duty. Right. And the and the whole first five minutes, it, the intro, is just this continuous shot. And it's showing you around the town and it's following their cars. They're going to this little Mexican city. And it's like, that really hadn't been done. And Wells was always known for breaking boundaries and being the rebellious spirit. Which is why, unfortunately, 
studios wanted nothing to do with him. Like, at some point during the production of this movie, and it was his movie, the studio was just like, yeah, we don't want you involved anymore. And it's just like, how did you just rip this genius away from this project? Like, after the success the the of the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane. Right. How do you doubt the man at this point? Well, the problem is that he, ne- he never wanted to pander to what studios wanted. So, like, when he did Citizen Kane, he basically almost got completely blacklisted from the industry because uh, William Randolph Hearst, who the story's based around... He was, like, threatening to shut him down, shut down the studio, because he had a lot of pull in the entertainment industry as a journalist. So they were like, oh, shit, like, maybe you can't come out with this movie. And then he did the Magnificent Ambersons, and the studio was like, hey, remember the extra hour and a half you added to the movie? Yeah, we're going to cut that out completely. So they made him cut the movie, like, three fucking times. So his whole life, studios fucked with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And he was this genius. But because he wouldn't play to their little puppeteering act, he was viewed as this uh, shunned adversary. It's like, come on. And it was the same with, like, Chaplin. He just, I mean, yeah. They And both of those figures, all they wanted to do was make good content. Yeah. They wanted to, they wanted to do things that had never been done before. They wanted to push the boundaries. They wanted to go where filmmakers hadn't gone. Sure. To bring uh, film into a new age. And yeah. And push it. Yeah. And really push it. Um, I know that Chaplin was initially extremely opposed to going into the talkie format. Initially. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But when he did, he did The Great Dictator. Yeah. And to this date, that movie contains one of the greatest... Oh, the speech, yeah. Speeches in film. Iconic. Timeless. Timeless. If you listen to it today, you'd be confused. You'd think it was a you'd think it was it was somebody talking today. about the way things are today. Sure. Because uh, it, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a great oh, speech. <laughs> Trump get off the podcast! <laughs> go eat a donut. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's just I'm gonna go hit a button and order myself a diet coke. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's timeless and that, and that's what I always take away from these great filmmakers. Like Orson Welles, anything he did was super timeless. Like uh, he did recently, they finally finished the fucking uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which was a movie 40 years in the making. He had such development hell. He lost money during the movie. The rights to the movie got lost because the producer took it. And then they had to go to a court for him to get the rights back. Then he died. And Peter Bogdanovich, who acted in it and also produced it as well, was like, hey, I promised him before he died that we would get the movie done. And like... It's brilliant. It's on Netflix now. I, I talked about it, so I won't go into it. But, like, that's why... You've I, seen it, though. Yeah, of course, yeah. There's, right? Yes, yes. There's a companion documentary, too, called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And it, it, it goes... Well, he wasn't wrong! Right, yeah. <laughs> and they go hand in hand. because It's like almost an extension of the film. I recommend both. They're on Netflix right now. Uh, you can pay me later. But um, I, but yeah, but yeah. So like I said, Touch of Evil like had this fucking real depth to it, and um, even like the use of music to set up scenes. Like uh, there's a scene where Orson Welles' character, who who's this, uh, you know, he's like this chief corrupted, officer, a corrupted police officer. He's a corrupted police officer, and he's been that way for years. But nobody actually knew that. But he spent all his time forging evidence. 
and uh, he confronts one of the, um, like, one of the Mexican leaders of, of his, he didn't want, like, a cartel, it was kind of like a, a little gang, like a family, they called them. So he was a part of this family, and he was, like, trying to threaten him, and he ends up strangling him over the bed of the, um, the, the other cop, his, his, uh, I don't, were they married? I think they were newlyweds. I, I could be wrong. But she was like all drugged up. So this was a setup. They drugged her up to then set her up to believe that she was the one that killed this guy. So like when Wells is doing this, the use of like bongos and horns, it's like, it's like real fucking tense. And like you're, you're uncomfortable. And that's like what I really took away from it. I'm like, wow, I, I've never watched something and actually felt that uncomfortable. Other than, like, this French film, La Trau, it's like a prison break story, but I won't get into that. But, like, or any Hitchcock, really. But, like... Oh, speaking of Hitchcock and, and, and diet and um, music, there's this fantastic scene in Strangers on a Train that I think you'll really appreciate. There's uh-huh. Minor spoiler alert, because obviously there has to be a murder, right? Yeah. When the murder actually takes place, it's at a carnival. And oh. Hitchcock... <laughs> deliberately keeps in the carousel music playing in the background. So as this woman is getting strangled, you're hearing... And it's, and it's fucking great. There's no stinger. There's no stinger for, for the kill. Right. There's, there's, there's and, and you know how there's always a stinger, right? Yes, yes. And it's, it's the craziest thing. It's so different. But, um... <laughs> yeah, but one of the one of the things I really appreciate about this time era is the use of diegetic sound. Yes, it's it, and it that and I feel like that never happens in this day and age anymore. Never because one of the things that is so that makes noir seem so real is that use of the of sound that and music that's being played in that area yeah. when something happens. Right, and how it it'll feel out of place, but at, at the same time. It's so like it's so wrong, but so right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I told yeah, I fuck. I really got to watch that. Yeah, you, know? you really do. <laughs> Jumping back to Citizen Kane real fast actually. I sure. wanted to mention this. Yeah. Um isn't it crazy how that movie just seems to borrow so many uh noir elements. Yeah, which um it can't it it, it doesn't involve a murder. So we really can't call it uh, noir. Right. And it also lacks a few other elements. But the use of shadows in that movie to show, to show yeah. uh, you know, Charles Foster Kane's fall from a graceful figure. Big fall. And then, like, yeah. the bi- and the use of the big open spaces in the house and the shadows on his face. Oh, yeah. The, the scenes in the house, like, that... So cold. Yeah. Um, so cold. So, yeah. that That's the perfect word. It was the perfect temperature for the movie, too. It's like, wow. Ice ice, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, totally. I agree a thousand percent. Um, but yeah, Touch of Evil, another noir staple, I believe, I think, uh, it definitely an important film. I see why they show it in classes. Real depth. It, it's not flat at all. I would recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. So, we mentioned Billy Wilder earlier, and yes. since we're on the topic of noir, we can't ignore Sunset Boulevard. Okay, yes. Now, this is also a film I think I've, I haven't seen. Uh, let me just... Real quick, you start talking because I might. We watched like 
10, I feel like we watched like 10 to 12 films in that noir class. Yeah. Some of them stuck out a little bit more than others. To me. Sure. You are now listening to the Silver Screen Fiends podcast. On with the show. So, um, we just took a, a quick pause here. And uh, I took a moment to hit up the Wikipedia article for Sunset Boulevard just to see if I had um I I had seen this movie, and while I feel like I might have, uh, at the very least I think I might have seen the the ending of it or, or something like that. It's it's hard. There's there were there were so many movies, and again, it's six years ago, but I can I'm able to sort of visualize this this ending scene based on what the Wikipedia article says. Yeah. So I think maybe I've seen at least the ending. Yeah, well, to refresh you and the viewers out there, <laughs> hi, guy in the back. Um, so it's a 1950s noir, obviously black and white, directed by Billy Wilder. And this one is unique because it, it's like this haunting horror story. Like, you don't really think of a noir as horror, but, like, it... it it really is. It's, like, really fucked up, if you think about it. Most noir... Actually, and I, I hate to disagree with you, uh, because you're the show's runner and dictator, and all of your opinions are law, um, <laughs> but uh, that said, I have always considered noir kind of horror, because I know someone's gonna die, I know it's gonna be very unpleasant, Yeah, I know the movie's gonna be gritty and suspenseful, it has a lot of horror elements in yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I would argue... Yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's horror esque. Yeah, I, I I can't say no to that. Um, but this but Sunset Boulevard is different because it like it's like uncomfortably horrific. Okay. Like so basically, um, Gloria Swanson plays Norma Desmond, who's this old silent movie star from years ago, and um, yeah. this 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 younger guy. Did you say yeah or you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And um, yeah. and uh, this this young writer Joe Gillis, who's played by William Holden, ends up at at the house for this. Uh, you know, he ends up like for this writing gig. Well, he basically gets trapped into a writing gig. You know, he was he's basically just trying to find work at this point, and then he and then she like reads this screenplay that he was writing, and she's like, "I want you to come work for me," and then literally moves his whole life. Into this little spot in this gigantic mansion. And so basically the movie is like... And this is another film that was kind of taboo back then. Because it was frowned upon for an older woman to want to date a younger guy. So Norma Desmond falls in love with Joe Gillis in the movie. And he's like, uh, no, I got Miss Nancy Schaefer, who's my gal. But Norma basically confines him in the space like doesn't let him make calls or travel and she's like what the fuck do we still have a relationship oh this is this is sounding very familiar all of a sudden i'm sure you've seen it oh yeah god it really is sounding familiar so yeah so basically so she's a silent movie star and like she's been out of the spotlight for years and she completely loses her mind like she and she's really hell-bent on making a comeback so with Gillis on board, she's like, oh, he's going to write my brand new screenplay. And then she's like, I'm going to get 
Cecil B. DeMille, and who actually makes a cameo in the movie towards the end. Is it like at the end of the movie he rebels against her or something like that? Like he won't let her control him anymore and then she kills him? Uh, uh well, essentially, yeah. But then you find out... I definitely think I've seen this one. Yeah, yeah. So, ba- yeah, basically she, she shoots Joe. But then you find out there's... So there's a butler you see throughout the movie. It you was know. the butler. The butler did it. <laughs> and he, and you know, he greets Joe, and you see him throughout the movie. But you find out at the end that he was secretly the first husband of Norma Desmond and a director, and he he's been holding he she's been holding him captive there for years. And like this is what I mean. Like it doesn't. Se- yeah, she is really <laughs> fucked up. See, <laughs> it doesn't sound that horrific, but. If you watch it, I promise you, it's uncomfortable. And yeah, sounds uncomfortable. It really it's like, fucking it, is. It, it, like the words you just let loose from thine lips were sandpaper to my ears, <laughs> <laughs> and not and not the fine sandpaper that's good for smoothing out wood. I'm talking like that gritty sandpaper mm. that, like, if you imagine wiping your ass with it, you know you're gonna bleed. Yay, verily. <laughs> But but you mentioned the ending in the beginning of this talk, and uh, it, it's it's iconic. Everyone knows I'm ready for my close up, Mister Demille, and she's like basically so far gone that she doesn't understand that she's about to be walking downstairs and having people commit her to an asylum. And, uh, excuse me. And um, the the director's like, no, let's pretend like we're doing a movie shoot. So she gets like all the he gets all these like. Uh, cameramen to surround the staircase and she's walking down and and it's actually funny because Gloria Swanson only agreed to do the shot if she could not look where she was walking so she some of the cameramen that were hired to be on the staircase were actually to make sure that she didn't fall because she's like I refuse to do the scene unless and that's commitment like that you know what I mean I love small details like that mm. are what do it for me but yeah, uh, again, to me, an essential nor. Most people hear Sunset Boulevard; they they don't necessarily think that, but it it is. It absolutely right. is. How was how was her career at that point at the time of doing uh, Sunset Boulevard? Was she still going strong, or was she kind of like slowing down at that point? Gloria Swanson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this obviously that was like her real breakout role. Um, I think she took jobs here and there. I don't I don't know too much about her filmography. But all I know is uh, she is a thousand percent most associated with that role, and like for a good reason. Like I, you know, you just see you just see a picture of Gloria Swanson, and you can picture, yep, crazy old silent film star that completely lost their shit years ago. I yeah, it. it's it's really starting to sound familiar to me. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, I, I if I were to watch the first ten minutes, I might I might start like remembering it better. Yeah. One of the things that I always loved about about film noir is, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, is the femme fatale. Yeah. And how a lot of movies will introduce the femme fatale with first it's a shot of her foot or her leg or something like that. <laughs> yes, yes. And all of a sudden in my head. Yep. Run. 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 alert. Yep. Run for alert. Bail. And get the fuck <laughs> out of there. She's going to get you killed, bro. <laughs> Don't stick me fucking crazy. And and the crazy part is, like, 90% of the time in a noir, uh, the, the male protagonist knows damn well that he's going down a really dark and tragic road. But he's like, you know what? Let's just fucking do this. Strap on in. <laughs> Enjoy the ride. Um, Breaking Bad. 
Like, you can't you can't talk about noir without talking about Breaking Bad, and in this day and age, and that's because Breaking Bad was a television show that borrowed so many noir elements, and it's such, I think so. It's yeah. oh, absolutely yeah. No, that's that's a fact. Yeah. Um, the use of shadows, like when they're in Saul's office. Or when he's at home, yeah, with the blinders on it, the blinds light peering through. The use of shadows when he's sitting by himself. No, um, there is noir written all over uh, Breaking Bad, and you can't. I, I wouldn't call the series itself a noir series, no, but, it, yeah. but it borrows so many elements. And um, and you mentioned how a guy will the guy will look at the femme fatale knowing he's about to right walk down he the knows door. damn well <laughs> yeah. right and at the end of Breaking Bad spoilers alert if stop listening if you don't want to hear the ending of Breaking Bad but uh, everyone dies th- <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah. um, he, he, throughout the whole series uh, Walter White is saying I do this for my family I do this for at the very last episode he says I did it for me right I did it, I liked it if uh, I. It, it made me feel alive. You know, the man had cancer and he was going to die. It was terminal. He was going to die of it. But up until that, the series, the reason I liked it is because he felt like he was actually in control of his own life. Yeah. In control of his own destiny. And he liked it because he felt it made him feel alive. Sure. Which is ironic. And that's and that, I feel like, is a lot of motivation for a lot of, uh, you know men who experience that downfall in noir it's because they break the law they go down this road because they want to experience that thrill that yeah that power absolutely that set that, that rush that sensation of knowing that you're doing something wrong and that you're gonna get away with it and you're good it's gonna work out for you and your life's gonna be so much better and you're in control and it just feels so good and then to see it all just spiral and crumble and just go completely out of control, and from there, and it's 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 what makes noir so entertaining. Yes, it's just, it's one big wild ride. It's an emotional roller coaster. It is, and it really is, and you can identify with that. Yeah, I think at, at our most basic core, we we strive to have that adventure, to have that rush of feeling. Yeah. Like, we're doing something. Now, I'm not advocating for murder or anything like that. I am. Okay. <laughs> for those of you who can't hear, my that, that, that was actually so funny, <laughs> it made my wife, who's upstairs, start laughing. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep me for a little bit. Uh, it's alright, Sam. We, 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 can, we can keep you in the basement. Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> anyway, so... Um, like, I think we all can identify with that, that desire for, for a rush... For for wanting to feel like we're on top, absolutely, and or just feeling alive, yeah, or just feeling alive. Because a lot of time we don't, <laughs> we just kind of like truck along our days, and uh, that's it. Shout out to everybody out there who has an office job. We got you. We got you. We got you, fam. Uh, noir <laughs> uh, film noir call. They said it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so. That that's that's generally like the the point I think I'm getting at here, like bringing up Breaking Bad and shit, is that like noir is about doing something wrong to feel right. Yeah, and that and that's that's what I think it is. I, I think like if I could even go back to Double Indemnity and argue, it was never about the money. No, it was never about the money. It was 
yeah, the money was definitely a motivating factor, but he wanted the woman and he wanted the rush. Which, which he, which Walter states in the movie. He's like, and, his and, name was Walter? Yeah, Walter Neff. Holy fuck. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> and, and it's funny because like Phyllis even calls him out on it. She's like, you, you were never in this for the money. He's like, no, I want no, I want nothing to do with this now. I, it's just like whatever. <laughs> it's like I'm a fucking insurance agent. <laughs> yeah, how exciting is my life? But uh, <laughs> I mean, I am an insurance agent too. <gasps> Spoiler alert! <laughs> That's actually one of the reasons why Double Indemnity like speaks volumes to me. Uh-huh. Is because like as an age, as an insurance agent, um, when people start bullshitting me on the phone. Uh, I can sort of tell when they're bullshitting. Right. And you I know, just like, you it's know. like, yeah. And it's, it goes back to the whole fraud thing. And, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and like working in the insurance agency, like helped me understand, like retroactively understand that movie a lot more, but just the ins and outs of it, just the, the sort of concept. Cause when I watched it, I didn't understand insurance at all. Right. Somebody works in the field now. It makes so much more sense to me. Right. Like, I didn't even know what the word indemnity was. Right, like, the name of the fucking movie. I had no idea that that was, like, a real clause in an insurance policy to to double the fucking payout. Well, indemnity means to be made whole. So that's the textbook definition of of indemnity is to be made whole. Uh When you suffer a loss, uh, your insurance policy indemnifies you to bring you back to where you are, make you whole again prior to that loss having occurred. Right. So, double indemnity means that, for in the case of that life insurance policy, the person dies, you're indemnified whatever the policy's value was for that person's life. But if he's killed in a violent manner, yeah, then you get double indemnity. Or like a rare occurrence, right? Which is right. what happens, because they plan it as like an accident off a train, which never happens. Right. <laughs> like, when was the last time you heard of someone dying... By jumping off a train. I've heard of people getting killed uh, by standing on a train, uh, train tracks. Like train tracks, right? Right. Because the thing is, those trains... But that'd be ruled as a suicide, which we know in the world of insurance. Not not always. Believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not always suicide. There's a band I listened to um, called uh, Porcupine Tree, and I was really into them back in like uh, 2011, 2012. Think, uh, around that time frame, so I was like reading up on like everything, and one of their songs was called uh, "Way Out of Here," and that was actually written by the by the whole band, and not just the the band head Stephen Wilson. And um, the song was actually a tribute to their like number one fan who was killed uh, on a train track, but it wasn't suicide. Oh, she, yeah, how did she, that happen? Trains move really, really fast yes. and really, really quietly. That's true. Um, so if you're just walking on tracks, it can, you know, you could very easily get hit. I by guess a train. that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, from from what I remember reading, it wasn't suicide. It was it was an accident. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't like Snidely Whiplash tied her down or anything like that. <laughs> True. Like, and how fucking crazy is that? By the way, like, like you have these cartoons where you show where where you had things like like fucking Snidely Whiplash tying a woman to railroad tracks to get run over by a train. Can you imagine that shit in today's age? 
Oh, never. No, exactly. No, they're literally... The things they got away with back then, and that, and, and strangely enough, that was considered a conservative time. Right, yeah. What about at the end of that Tom and Jerry episode where Tom is just so fed up with the uh, the chaotic events of the day, and he goes to sit on the track, and Jerry joins him, and they're sitting there depressed, just looking at the camera, and it's implied that they're killing themselves. It's like, Jesus Christ! Or what about the times characters literally take a gun out and just shoot themselves in the head? Yeah, it's... It's like, wow. Yeah. That escalated. And and, and the funny... And, and you, it would appeal to the audience's dark sense of humor. And that's another thing. Like That's one of the reasons why I feel like noir can't be done in this day and age is because I would argue almost that it's too dark. It's too dark for, for, today, for today's audiences... For today's studios, they you wouldn't be able to pull off a good noir in 2018. First of all, because the acting talent is just not there. Yeah. It's not it's not the same. The aesthetic, the movie's aesthetics are different. No one's going to shoot a black and white movie in 2018, and so it, it's a dead art. And it was an art. Yeah, it's it's done very rarely. It it it's still being done, but not really. I, it could still be being done. And again, I don't mean to disagree with you because, again, your word is law. <laughs> your opinion is law. No, no, mean, meaning not that it's effective, but it is done. It's a, There are elements of noir that are borrowed. No, no, the, uh, black and white film, I meant. Oh. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah, most, no. They, most, it, the most it, recent black and white movie I remember seeing was Good Night and Good Luck. And as a 16-year-old boy sitting in that movie theater watching Good Night and Good Luck... I wanted to die. I absolutely <laughs> hated that movie from front to finish. I just wanted to. Abs- I My get, condolences. Dude, I get the McCarthy witch hunts were a very dark period in American history, but holy fuck, that movie was boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so I think we're wrapping this up now. Uh, well, oh, uh, do you have another one? Ju- what? Oh, one, boy. One, one thing uh, we can't talk about nor without talking about like the fucking pioneer of it, which was the Maltese Falcon. So yeah, uh, the Maltese Falcon was like one of the first film noirs ever introduced to the scene. 1941, directed by John Huston, a completely stellar cast. It had Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet. And and this was really Bogart's like true breakout role. He di- he did several roles prior. He did some Broadway, and then he did some movie roles. He did a uh, Dead End, which was not a noir, but it was kind of a dark, gritty crime drama thriller. And it uh, actually starred the uh, Dead End Kids, which were a comedy group from like the forties. But um, that's beside the point. So, yeah, pave the way for the Nora era. Hold up, hold up, hold up. I'm sorry. When you say comedy group, you're talking like Shakespearean comedy, where you're where it's like not tragic, or do you mean comedy group as in ha-ha? No, like ha-ha. Like, they were like, it's hard to explain the dead-end kids. They were like, they weren't like the Stooges. It was like, it was like this group of kids that would always get into trouble. It wasn't like directly meant to be comedy, but it, it was played that way like they would always get into these mishaps okay like it, it like they were they always tried to act tough and thug like but like you knew that They're they had cups on the inside a little bit yeah to an extent um but uh some characters it was hard to see that with 
like a Leo Gorsi who always played Muggsy. He was always kind of like, it was harder to see through his exterior. But um, anyway, so yeah, so basically a murder mystery that centers around a detective. Right there, biggest noir element, uh, Sam Spade, who's played by Humphrey Bogart. And it starts with him, uh, his partner ends up getting killed. So he's trying to investigate that. And then as time goes on, he's contacted by several people throughout the movie. Right. Like the femme fatale, Mary Astor, and then Peter Laurie, who is like this henchman to Sidney Greenstreet, who's like the head of this, not like a conglomerate, but like a... a Crime this, syndicate. Uh, kind of, yeah. But it, it's it's more like this little gang of people. Oh, that, Like this... <laughs> like... Thank you, Anthony. Uh, this group of criminals that they're searching for this prize statue, which is the Maltese Falcon, and um, it's uh, covered head to toe in all these fantastic jewels. Belongs right there in Trump Tower. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like all covered in gold. And it's covered head to beak and beak to toe, and uh, or should I say beak to claw? And beak ge- to talon. Beak to talon. Thank you. To um gems and diamonds and such and back then it like it's valued at four thousand in the movie which now is like fifty thousand you know in today's money it would be yeah um, it'd be a very it would be a very expensive piece but it might like from what i was reading up on it while we were uh just taking that quick recess there was um that this was a historical piece that was gifted to charles v by the knights templar and like for me, it doesn't matter if it's covered in jewels or not. That alone, like to me, makes it feel like it should be worth even back then way more. Than right, and when I, when I read the actual amount, I was actually taken back. I'm like, because the, the way that they all pine for it and it becomes this object of lust, you would think like, well, yes, okay, fifty thousand, that's significant money, but like, but they, they you would have thought it was like a million bucks. You can go after it like it's El Fucking Dorado. Exactly, good movie. Um, but I, I Are we re- talking about the animated El Dorado? Oh, of course. Oh my god, that's one of my favorite movies growing up. Holy shit. Right? <laughs> I love I just, it. I, did, I thought it was the only one who had seen it. No, no I no love one, it. No one else ever talks about it. Right, it's it's very underrated. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's criminal. It's fucking criminal. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's noir, right? We, we, we say El Dorado's noir. El Dorado is my ideal noir. <laughs> Um, it's a little bit too vibrant for that, but yes. <laughs> By vibrant, we mean colorful as fuck! Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the movie becomes this witch hunt for this Maltese Falcon. And Sam Spade, so why this was, uh... Hold on, so, what, what, what time period was this? The, uh, you know, like in the 40s. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but... I was gonna, I was gonna say... If it was in like the the sixties or the seventies, we could have called it a communist hunt. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, McCarthyism jokes. Ah, uh, too soon. Um, so it, it, but the the reason that this movie, I believe, resonated, like when you think of noir, this movie pops in your head, and I think, um, well, other than Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, Touch of Evil, all those examples, right, right, right. But I think because noir. Um, always kind of had this consistency with the main character, which was they were always like quick witted and intelligent and like not necessarily the top of their field, but they're always like on their A game. But Sam Spade, the Humphrey Bogart's character, he was just like a cynical, foul mouthed 
to like an average Joe, and he would like sometimes put himself over others. But like that's the realness that you come to know and love in that movie. Like like I said, you know, movie detectives are usually like these classy caricatures, like in the Thin Man. Or, like, super intelligent and quick-witted, like, from out of the past. But Bogart didn't play it like that. He was just straight-up vulgar. And he was certainly not the hero of the movie. Oh, you brought up out of the past, though. Can we talk about that when we're done here? Uh, yeah, we can We can do uh, an honorable mention. Um, but all I was going to say, really, you know, the, the key theme of the movie here is ambiguity. Yeah. So, like, who and what in this world is real or fake? Because multiple times throughout the movie... You're thinking like, okay, is Sam Spade out to stop these criminals? Or maybe he wants a cut of it. And he actually ends up playing both sides throughout the movie. And then you're questioning, well, are they actually the bad guys? Or maybe they're just victims of circumstance. Maybe they're just money hungry due to being impoverished and they just want a taste of a good life. But that's what I'm saying. That's why I love noir. Because it brings realness to it. It's not cut and dry. It's not like a Disney movie like this is the villain. This is Gaston. He's a womanizing cunt. No one <laughs> falls off roofs like Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> In hell or, um so I, but I think Do you but, need one? I've got one right there. No, I'm good. But I think that that's what attracts me to it. It's it's super fucking real. It's like who are the people after the treasure? Is Sam actually in love with this dame? Why are his enemies out to kill? Like, you know, the world may never know. But that it's like... That's pace, just how it is. Right. The pacing is just so beautiful. And and it's just... Oh, my God. I fucking... It's like one of my all-time favorite movies. You know how I mentioned Undertale earlier? Yes. Like, briefly? Yes. So, you know, Deltarune? <laughs> the end-user license agreement for Deltarune could also be the end-user license agreement for every noir film that you watch, which is, you accept everything that is going to happen from here on out. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> and that—that's the terms. This is not going to end well. Right. This is this is going to be dark. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be brutal. Right. And if you're going to if you're going to sit here and you're going to enjoy this, you must accept that. Right. It's like, well, you're sucked in this now. <laughs> Too late. One of the things, uh, just jumping uh, to a slightly different topic who conserves the noir, Postman Always Rings Twice. That's another classic. Yeah, that's that, a um, great movie. But one of the things that I noticed is a common uh, element in noir is that um, the the criminals always seem to rip themselves apart at some point. Yeah. And that's why usually why things don't work out, like, like fucking Double Indemnity, he ends up shooting her. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, towards the end of the movie. Which I did not see coming. Like, like he gives you glimpses. Goodbye, baby. Yeah, he, he, like, uh, he, like, slightly alludes to it. He's kind of like, well, in a perfect world, I'd kind of rather have her gone than me. But, like, you don't think he's actually going to do that. It's kill or be killed. Right. I mean, at some point, we have, you know, it comes down to that basic survival instinct of we have to look out for ourselves and if, at that point, she was a direct threat to him. Right. So he removed that threat. It's natural. It's basic natural instinct. It's fucked up. Right. Well, because because right. they 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 worded it perfectly in the movie when um when Keys's uh, when Robinson's character Keys was talking with Walter about it, he was like, 
Well, you know, in, in any murder mystery, it's two people a- along the same track, on a train track. And it's like both people are either getting off at once or they're staying on it. But they're most likely getting off at once. And it means they're probably going to get caught and or die. So he was like, I got to get off this fucking train. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. We uh we kind of wanted to do some honorable mentions before we wrap up, right? And um, out of the past is one of them, which I actually yeah. just saw for the first time not that long ago. Good movie, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I love Robert Mitchum. Like he always seems to play this like classy, couth, quick-witted asshole gentleman. <laughs> uh, like Night of the Hunter was a great movie, but yeah, out of the past. There was a lot of action in that movie. There was, like more yeah. than More than your normal noir film. That's, that's the one... I don't remember all the details from out of the past, cause again, six years ago, but yeah. one thing I do remember from that is that there's this huge chase scene where Joe is trying to chase down... What's his name? And, uh, and it turns out into like this, this big like gun chase. Yeah. And he ends up getting the better of, a, of, the, of his assailant. And, uh, and it was just... It's great because the guy who's... Who's trying to kill him is the same guy who pulled him back into all that shit in the beginning of the movie. Sure, it's it was it's such a great fucking movie. I love that one. Yeah, and I and, and I always love Kirk Douglas because he just plays like such a tyrannical asshole. Like he plays it smooth, but then when he starts losing it, that's when the movie like gets good. The kind, yeah, the kind of guy who like just when he, his presence on screen. Kind of makes your skin crawl a little bit. Yes, absolutely. You could say, you could look at at him in that suit and that top hat, and you're just thinking to yourself, he's a slime ball. <laughs> he's a fucking snake. You, you could sort of like see the, the, the light reflecting off of his skin like he's got scales. Oh, absolutely. And and especially when... Um, uh, Robert, lighting. Yeah. yeah. When uh, Robert Mitchum's character, Jeff Bailey, he ends up... Um, you know, t- taking Jan Greer off, like, there. He's like, oh, we're gonna run away with this money, but both of them have these ulterior motives, and, and Mitchum calls the cops prior to running away, quote-unquote, with uh, Greer's character, and as they're on the road, she sees far ahead, like, they're, they're kind of in this, like, forest-like area, and she sees ahead the cops, and she's like, you son of a bitch! And she, like, shoots him... As the cops are shooting her, and then he, like, tries to get out of the car, and then the, the cops come and swarm it. But, like, that setup, like, because I, you don't see that coming. And it's just, like, it keeps you on your fucking toes the whole time. All noir keeps you on your toes. Oh, absolutely. There's, no, there's, 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 like, no dry moment. Even the dry moments, there's, like, you have to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. And then Postman Always Rings Twice. I brought that up a little bit earlier. Um... That one really, I, I don't remember all the details from that movie, but from what I remember most about it is that in that movie in particular, they really tear themselves apart. They, they, they would have gotten away with it if their guilty consciences hadn't fucking just completely, like, tore them apart. Right. And and, and that's, it, it, it kind of goes back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart a little bit. Like, that's the, that's the pinnacle of, the uh, tale of, Good of good crime, perfect crime gone wrong, ruined by guilty conscience. Right, because no misdeed ever goes unpunished. That's one of the rules of noir. Right, that you have to punish. Right, and that like that's a staple. <laughs> like you it have to establish yes. that. Yes. Right, um, and it's it's a shame 
too that the, that that was one of the things that the that they had to show in the movie was the good guy gets punished. Yeah. Because as we all know in real life, bad people get away with doing bad things all the fucking time. Every day, every, every second. Every fucking day. So, yep, absolutely. In my opinion, it would have been a little bit more realistic. Oh, you know what? There is this movie. Um, it's not noir. doesn't even have any noir-like elements, but uh, it's called The Player. Oh, with Ro- the Robert Altman, Altman movie? I believe so. It was starring Tim Robbins. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I um, love that movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the and, one where where he ends up killing the killing, writer, killing the writer, and then yeah, I love that movie. And he he, he punches him in, or something like that. Beat, it, yeah, they get into a fight. They get into a fight, and he, he dies. Like, yeah. Oh, somebody witnesses it. Blackmails the guy throughout the whole movie, but the bastard gets away with it at the end. Yeah, and and then the guy who blackmailed him ends up writing the movie, right? The player about it. And it's it's just it, that that movie is so meta, but it was perfect because this entire time you're watching that movie and you're sitting there going, he's gonna get fucking caught and this is gonna blow up and this is gonna end tragically for him, but he never does. Right. And there is this this sinister satisfaction seeing him get away with it. Yeah, no, there really is. And it's and there are so many tropes that are intentionally broken in that movie. Well, it's well the movie's meant to be a satire it on is. like on Hollywood in general. Right. Yeah. It, 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 that movie was a was a big fuck you to. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And yes. but one of the things that's most impressive about that movie is the opening scene and how there are no cuts. Yeah. How long they go without any cuts and how perfectly executed that is, um, which is why Touch of Evil was so brilliant. <laughs> another movie that 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 does has a long opening scene with no cuts is uh, oh, Christ. It, it was a it was a Francis Ford Coppola film. Um, how did we manage to go this entire time t- talking about noir and not bring up The Godfather? <laughs> oh, well, I, I mean, it's it, it's 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 a, it's a kind of a, that's a tricky line we're crossing because it's. Yes, elements it, it of is it. It is and isn't. Right, that's the thing. Like, And and plus, I think everyone's... Sam, why you come on, give me a bringer. I want to be on the waffle. Clearly on the waffle. Okay, can I just tell... Because I have, I have a perverse knowledge of really dumb, obscure facts about Hollywood. So can I just tell a quick Merlin Brando story? Oh, please, Sam, I love to hear Merlin Brando. Okay, Mr. Brando, I know you've been dead for quite a while, but... <laughs> Um, it's a comfortable grave. It's very nice. <laughs> I love it with money. Was, at one point, I was the highest paid actor in all of Hollywood. That's true. Yeah. You want to know how much they paid me to do a uh, cameo in the Superman movie? A lot. I'm pretty sure I was like 70% of the movie's budget. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know he gave them the hardest time. He Like, they went to him with the offer. He's like, no. They're like, here's a figure. He's like, no. And he's like, tell you what. Here's the figure. And he did such a ludicrous amount, he didn't expect the studio to agree. But it's Roland fucking Brando. Of course they're going to say yes. And then even then... And it's such a small fucking role. Right. Jor-El. Right. And, but, he, but he reached a point where he hated Hollywood. He thought people were phony. And he's like, I'm going to fuck with people. As a matter of fact... This, this wasn't the story I was going to tell, but this story sums up Marlon Brando perfectly. Go for so, it. So, do you, do you know Guys and Dolls? No. Okay, so it, it, um, it was a Broadway show a while ago uh, about this gambler. 
and he's like trying to start up his own, you know, what would you call it? Not like a casino, but like a little gambling house. Like they play dice and shit like that. I'm Mr. King Dice. <laughs> I'm the gamest in the land. <laughs> now you're the what in the land? But uh, so in the movie adaptation, it's, um, I believe Joseph Mankiewicz directed it and it stars Frank Sinatra. As as the the gambler and uh, Merlin Brando plays opposite him, and the joke about the movie is that Brando had no vocal lessons. He didn't really know how to sing. He he gets away with it a little bit, but like the joke the joke of the movie is that like it's he wasn't known for singing, so people rip on that. Um, so when Sinatra was getting fed up with Brando, because obviously at this point. Brando was already kind of a big name. So, uh, you know, he had done a streetcar named Desire, and now he was desired by studios. So, yeah, so uh, keep him coming. So Sinatra was getting fed up with Brando because he's like, oh, he's like this snobby New York piece of shit. So there's a scene in Guys and Dolls where Sinatra's character... uh, he purposely finds out statistics about the bakery they're in. He's like, when you're a gambler, you'll bet over anything. So he bets Brando's character over how much more strudel they make over cheesecake in the bakery. So Brando was getting sick of Sinatra being like this, oh, this crooner who thinks he knows the fucking world and how it operates. So in the scene, Sinatra is eating cheesecake. So when Sinatra got to the end of the piece of cheesecake, Brando would purposely fuck up his line. So they would have to reshoot it and Sinatra would have to eat another piece of cheesecake. He did it to him eight fucking times in a row. That's a whole damn cheesecake. Yeah, and Sinatra at the end of it was so sick. He was like, you bastard. I mean, Brando like, just didn't give a fuck, and I loved that about him. But, you know, we, we could talk about that all day, but we won't. Um, and that's why Frank Sinatra died of diabetes. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marlon Brando was a cuck. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, we, we did, I did mention Kirk Douglas earlier. I did very quickly just want to touch on another Billy Wilder production called Ace in the Hole. I don't know if you ever heard of it. I did, but before you jump into this... It was the conversation that was the Coppola film. Oh, um, oh, the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's another movie that I feel like it's not noir in no way, shape, or form is it noir. But that's another movie where this where something happens and the the I don't even remember where I was going with it earlier. <laughs> it was we we got into the we got into the Brando talk, but um, and but, of course yeah. Gene Hackman is great and John Cazell who died early and did only did a handful of movies like Dog Day Afternoon and The Conversation but he ended up all five of the movies he did all like won awards like he he was such a fucking underrated actor that's another but, movie i watched um i don't know if it was for my for my general film class or if that was for the noir class i don't think it was from the noir class yeah it was cuz it was more of a drama thriller so oh I, god but it's so good it's good it's good yeah um but uh 
so, ribbed for pleasure. <laughs> so uh, please sponsor us. So Ace in the Hole, <laughs> very quickly, stars Kirk Dulles. Uh, his name is Chuck Tatum. Yeah. And he plays like this defunct newspaper guy down on his luck, and he tries to con his way back into a job. And this is based on a true story. He ends up going to this little town where, in this mine shaft, this dude gets trapped. And he's, like, amidst all these rocks. And, like, they have to... Now it's, like, a high-stakes race to try to get this guy out of there. But Chuck Tatum figures... Oh man, this could be a big fucking story. So it ends up being this huge spectacle, and like thousands of people flock to the site, and Chuck's going in and out and feeding them headlines, and there's like food stands set up and a carnival, and it, this guy's misfortune ends up being his gain. And it's like, and and it is considered a noir because he stops at nothing to get what he wants. He smacks around the the main girl. He. And and he doesn't even try to succumb to her trauma at all. He completely, from the start, treats her and everybody else like shit. Like he's a con- condescending dickhead, and that's kind of why I like Kirk Douglas because he like he plays that aggressive asshole so well that you want to hate him, but you you hate to love him and you love to hate him. Yeah, is the perfect way to describe Kirk Douglas. It's it's an ideal villain. It's an ideal. Yes. Yeah, he's an ideal yeah. villain antihero. You know what have you with, with with that with that title? Right, exactly. And the moral of the story is, uh, you know, God giveth, God taketh away. It's the rise and fall of this guy who thought he could get away with whatever the fuck he wanted, and then it just <laughs> falls also, flat on him. That's actually it's funny you mentioned. That's actually one of my favorite expressions: is the hand giveth, the hand taketh Take away. <laughs> It's true though, and, and and then the the guy, the poor guy in the mine shaft ends up dying, which ruins the story. And all he can think about is how he's like all these newspaper public publications from New York and Chicago now want to hire him. And after this happens, they're like, "No, fuck you, you greedy son of a bitch!" Like yeah, this right. guy died. So anyway, just that was just a quick mention. But um, you know, Nor, we love it. We hope you do too. If you are, have never been exposed to it. Let I me expose you. I, I can't. <laughs> Full naked. <laughs> Full nudity. Exposure to noir. Oh my. Ribbed one last time. <laughs> For pleasure. No! <laughs> um, Alright, so uh, this has been Silver Screen Fiends Podcast. We uh, definitely appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Yes. Um, I had a lot of fun with this and I uh, definitely hope to be back on the show. And uh, once again, cuck Joe. Don't um, bet on it. Yeah, well, we can do that. We, we can definitely cuck Joe. Yeah, we can All do right, that. Cool. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I've been Sam. I've been Anthony. And you've been listening to the Silver, Silver Screen Fiends Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> oh, can I do it? Can I do it? Can yeah, I you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> The Silver Screen Fiends Podcast would like to take a moment to thank you for listening. We really can't pay you or anything, but we promise not to come over unannounced and drone on and on about the current economic climate and drink all of your IPA. Because let's face it, that's clearly what you drink.